Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're UC Davis Children's Hospital trained pediatricians in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into this episode. I'm trying to learn medical Spanish terms, and one of my favorite ones is icterisha, which is the word for jaundice, like scleral icterus. Nice. That's actually a really easy way to remember it then. Thanks. It's really helpful. Yeah. I might have totally pronounced it wrong, but um, that was my attempt. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to break this topic up into a special two-part episode for differential and management of jaundice. I want to start off this newborn jaundice episode by going over the physiology of bilirubin because I think it's actually really helpful in framing all the causes and diseases that lead to hyperbilirubinemia. So unconjugated or indirect bilirubin is lipid soluble, so that means it can cross the blood-brain barrier. It needs to be bound to albumin and transported to the liver, where it can be converted to water-soluble conjugated bilirubin, or, which is also known as direct bilirubin. So conjugated slash direct bilirubin passes through the bile duct system into your intestines to form bile acids, where 90% of them are cleared from the body in the stool and 10% of them are converted back to unconjugated bilirubin and reabsorbed in the intestine, which is known as enterohepatic recirculation. So unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia can come from increased bilirubin production or decreased liver conjugation. That's right. So causes of increased bilirubin production include hemolysis, excessive polycythemia, or cephalohematomas. So in the hemolysis category, you can think about ABO or RH incompatibility, which is also known as isoimmune hemolytic anemia. You can think about erythrocyte membrane or enzyme defects like G6PD, which if you recall is an X-linked recessive deficiency in the enzyme that protects red blood cells from oxidative stress and hemolysis. You can also have hemolysis with DIC. So think about those really sick babies. Um, excessive polycythemia is something that you want to think about in big babies who are infants of diabetic moms in twin-twin transfusion and post-date babies. And then cephalohematomas, like I was saying, is when you have that subperiostal bleeding that does not cross suture lines. And don't confuse this with caput secundums, which are like a cap and do cross suture lines and don't increase your risk for hyperbilirubinemia. Yeah, and don't forget about subelials, which is like a big, scary version of a cephalohematoma. Great um, point. So, <laughs> yeah. So those are kind of causes of increased bilirubin production. There's also decreased liver conjugation, which can also cause unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And you can see that in things like prematurity due to an immature liver, congenital hypothyroidism, Gilbert or Krigler-Najjar. So these are conjugation enzyme defect syndromes and certain medications. The more common cause of decreased conjugation that we know about is breast milk jaundice, which is due to the inhibition of the UGT enzyme due to compounds in mom's breast milk. Now, this is in contrast to breastfeeding jaundice, which is now better referred to as suboptimal intake hyperbilirubinemia, and that's due to decreased excretion and increased enterohepatic reabsorption of the unconjugated bilirubin from inadequate breast milk intake. 
Normal newborn physiologic jaundice has both increased bilirubin production from natural red blood cell hemolysis, since babies are born slightly polycythemic, and decreased conjugation from the immature liver, as well as slow stooling to remove bilirubin. Now, when it comes to conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, which is also known as direct hyperbilirubinemia, we'll define it here as direct bilirubin greater than 20% of the total bilirubin. So... That's the baby with jaundice and poops that the parents say are color of yummy, buttery mashed potatoes or chalky white. Yeah, thanks for that image. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. So that should instantly key you into what, Lydia? Biliary atresia. Yeah, perfect. So let's hear from Dr. Daphne Say, who's one of our amazing pediatric gastroenterology docs at UC Davis, um, and her take on biliary atresia. Well, I think all of these things are really important and valid considerations, and especially when it comes to just kind of thinking about it from a general pediatric standpoint. So I guess to kind of tackle the the first thing on the list, so the question that always comes up, and especially from parents as well, is, well, why does this happen, right? And I think that there's definitely a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion about what causes biliary atresia. There are mm-hmm. a few theories, um, and a lot of different mechanisms that have been suggested. And the thought is that perhaps maybe one or more of these mechanisms can contribute to pathogenesis. So there is some thought that there may be a viral etiology. There are some regional seasonal variations that perhaps even suggest things like rotavirus or rheovirus. And this comes from a New York State epidemiological study from the mid-90s. Uh, In this particular study, they actually saw, so the New York City birth rate with biliary atresia seemed to peak in March versus October for other New York State regions' birth rates of biliary atresia. And so that there was some sort of hypothesis that maybe an infectious etiology was happening. Hmm. But there are conflicting results among other studies that can compare, say, urban to rural birth rates. So still kind of unclear. Uh, In the... 60s, the 80s, and again, most recently in uh, the early 2000s, there were some studies that suggested perhaps even a toxic etiology. So this is kind of a fascinating story. In Australia, there were three different sort of outbreaks or peaks of biliary atresia that occurred in three separate decades. So um, if I'm pulling up the right study here, so in 1964, 1988, and again in 2000, uh, during a drought, Uh, there were a lot of um, uh, affected, believe it or not, not humans, but lambs that were born to moms who were grazing on dry lands that had been previously flooded. And the clinical manifestations and autopsies of these deceased baby sheep were consistent with biliary atresia. And so there was some theory that like these pregnant sheep were eating toxins from these flooded lands and that could be what could have precipitated this happening. Again, it's definitely a reach. It's an animal study, but it's part of the sort of general thought process of what could be happening. Besides viral and toxin-mediated causes, there's some question about genetics. So there's an increased frequency of a gene called CFC1. I don't expect any pediatrician to know this for their board exams, but as a gastroenterologist, I certainly need to. And this gene mutation is involved in determining laterality. And so 
there's definitely an association between things like situs and versus and biliary atresia, if you've come mm. across that in your reading. And so there is that theory that this may be involved as well. Um, more recently, I think that the biggest mechanism that everyone considers is immunologic. And what the theory behind this comes from is that in portal or sinusoidal areas, when people are doing biopsies of these uh, individuals who have biliary atresia, there's an increased presence of these sort of maternal chimeric cells. So the question that comes up from a pathology standpoint, is this some sort of graft versus host response? Uh, the other theory is that there may be different polymorphisms that can enhance gene expression of CD14 because that immune cell tends to be more predominant when people biopsy these uh, patients. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that this is some sort of upregulation of these pro-inflammatory genes. Because despite the name biliary atresia, it makes you think it's the static process, but really it's the sort of progressive pro-inflammatory situation. So really the big categories people think of as possible mechanisms, maybe a virus, could it be a toxin, maybe a genetic predisposition, or maybe it's your immune system. Quite possibly, it could be combinations of all of these things together. So the short answer is that no one really knows for sure, but there are a lot of proposed theories. Yeah, that's <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> like the studies that are out there, there's definitely a lot of, you know, theories that people have put out. I think the one that I find the most compelling is the sheep study, because I think it's pretty interesting that you can make that reach between what you found in an animal study versus what's happening in human infants. But either way, like this is the same kind of data I often share, especially with our really savvy families that want to know, well, why, why our child and why now, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other topic I know you brought up was like the timing of the Kasai, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like with many things associated with biliary atresia, there's always a lot of controversy about that as well. I think that certainly the predominant uh, teaching, and I think that what we still espouse, is that you should really try to do these procedures or do these surgeries in patients as early as possible. And that's because like the first studies that came out after this procedure um, uh, was introduced in the 1960s showed that if you did these surgeries in babies that were less than, I believe it's about 45, 50 days, they tended to have better outcomes. So the actual numbers show that there is a 12% difference in 15-year survival with the native liver. And that was like the one of the first studies that came out after Kasai's were introduced. Hmm. The twist to this, because after you had invited me to come and speak a little bit about this, is I'd reached out to a couple colleagues of mine who are transplant physicians, and there's actually some recent controversy, because the question is, is, well, does a delay in treatment, like, how does that really significantly impact outcome? Because there are certainly patients who have had Kasai procedures after that sort of 45-day cutoff who also do fairly well. So what does it mean in terms of time frame. That said, while there are some sort of anecdotal studies that and, and reports that come out, even in that controversy, as a general rule, as hepatologists, we still recommend an early diagnosis and intervention. So, mm -hmm. because I think certainly it's like, um, do you wait to give the antibiotics until the culture comes back or do you do them while you're waiting? I think that's yeah. the approach, you know? Yeah. Um, but I mean, the good news is, is that kids who have a Kasai after 90 days, 
there are studies that demonstrate that about 13 to 16% can still have a really good chance of survival with their native liver, which means that Mm -hmm. they can actually do okay and may not need a transplant. So I think that, again, while there is a lot of controversy that's out there for all general pediatricians, I think the takeaway is early diagnosis and early intervention. And the hope is to try to get a Kasai done before 45 days of age, if you can. Yeah. I feel like that's like what I've read as well. Mm-hmm. Like, cause there's definitely like a lot of like folks who are devil's advocate where you read these isolated case series or case reports and they're like, well, technically does it have to be 45 days? But quite frankly, I can't think of anyone who would say, you know what? It's okay to wait on the Kasai. That was a great discussion with Dr. Say. As she mentions, we don't know exactly why biliary atresia happens, but some insult in utero causes the body to start breaking down its bile ducts, both inside the liver, so intrahepatically, and outside the liver, extrahepatically. If you suspect biliary atresia, you should get an abdominal ultrasound, but this can only rule it in, not out. So if you're still concerned, you can get a HIDAS scan, but the gold standard is a liver biopsy. Yeah, and I forget if we talked about this, but uh, for a HIDA scan, you usually will give the patients phenobarbital because it increases um, the excretion of bile and so actually like makes the HIDA scan more um, accurate. But uh, that was a little bit off topic. <laughs> um, once diagnosed uh, with biliary atresia, um, like Dr. Say had mentioned as as well, um, you can do a Kasai, which is also known as a hepatoportoenterostomy. Um, and that connects the liver to the small intestine so that the bile can actually flow out and bypass the tritic extrahepatic bile ducts. Yeah. And the reason why it's so important not to build miliary atresia is because the Kasai has a significantly higher success rate if done before six to eight weeks of life. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, because bilirubinuria continues to progress in the intrahepatic bile ducts, um, the Kasai isn't actually fixing that part since it's only treating the extrahepatic portion. Um, so again, like Dr. Say was mentioning, um, most of these patients eventually do need a liver transplant. Yeah, but the point is that we want to try to like delay that time in which they do need a liver transplant. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we got sidetracked, and there's obviously lots of other causes of conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Biliary atresia is an obstruction to bile duct flow, as are colodocal cysts and allergial syndrome, where you're born with fewer bile ducts. Yeah, and you can um, have defects in bioacid synthesis or transport. So those sort of things are like in progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis, which is... um, what we like to refer to as PFIC, the easier way to say that, um, or in metabolic liver disorders like gestational alloimmune liver disease. Um, there's some other disorders like tyrosinemia, alpha-1 antitrypsin, which if you recall, that causes emphysema later in life, um, galactosemia, and mitochondrial disorders. And acute liver injury will obviously also affect conjugation. So things like ischemia, hypoxia, or acidosis, and infections from torch bugs or sepsis can also cause cholestasis. Yeah, and don't forget about your NICU babies who are on TPN, so they can get parenteral-associated cholestasis, which is actually pretty common. Great. So next time you see a jaundiced newborn, we hope that you remember this episode and have a solid differential in your head. Join us for our newborn jaundice management episode where we talk about what you actually do with these babies. That's all for this episode. 
You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PediagogyPod. That's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Magana at OM Audio Productions for music composition and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlis for mentorship.